Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast about film and television in which we talk about a theme that changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and this week I am joined by the co-founders of Rare Giants, a not-for-profit organisation programming arts with cultural significance that has benefited from restoration and or preservation and they are Ryan Finnegan and Kat Chernside. Hi guys, how are you? Hello. Hey. Uh, yes, very good, thank you. Cool. How are you? And... <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm good. I'm enjoying a cup of tea and being a little down, as I'm sure a lot of people in the film world are, by the news that broke just yesterday that uh, John Hurt has passed away. Uh, John yeah. Hurt, for people who don't know, and I would be shocked if people didn't know because he's done so many things and he's touched on so many people's lives in different ways, was a veteran actor, died at the age of 77, had been working pretty much non-stop since the late 1960s or maybe the early 1960s and had in his lifetime worked on some truly seminal works of uh of of film including but not limited to things like alien the harry potter series personal favorite of mine hellboy uh you know he's he's just worked on so many things uh i was just wondering how you guys are feeling about it if uh, if you're happy about it which i i doubt um <laughs> Or, uh, you know, what what are your memories of John Hurt? I, I was a particular fan of John Hurt. I went to see him in uh, in a play when I was younger um, called Heroes, which um, we we picked. I was allowed to pick whichever uh, play in the West End that uh, my family could go and see. And mm. I think they expected me to pick something like Cats or, you know, some kind of big show that we would all enjoy. And I, I'd seen that there was a show on called Heroes starring John Hurt, so I insisted that we all went to see that because of John Hurt and it was incredible and it was sort of a, an experience for me that really uh, got me into theatre rather than film because of that performance solely. So I was a big fan and as you said with, with film as well, um, I loved The Elephant Man and Heaven's Gate and Alien. There's so many uh, key roles in cinema that he played and as well as his kind of later years in franchise movies and being somebody that you could rely on to turn up in a big film and kind of lend it some weight and credibility. Mm. Yeah, and he most recently, or the thing I most recently saw him in was Jackie, where he's got like four or five scenes playing a priest. And it was it for me, it was almost like the, mo- the most typical John Hurt performance, which is like even in, you know, he could show up in good movies, he could show up in bad movies, but as soon as he showed up, you knew he wasn't going to waste your time. That you know yeah. something good was going to happen for at least a few minutes, and Jackie's a really good film. I really really liked that film, but uh, you know, just him showing up was like that extra dollop of goodness. I guess the thing that made me think, oh, this is like I know that I'm in for a, a good film now because they've managed to get John Hurt for a bit. Yeah, and uh, sort of on a separate note as well, I I kind of knew he was uh, the patron for Derby Quad Cinema and was kind of mm. you know like kind of a patron of the arts, and I know some of the people that work there and. I've seen some of their tributes this morning and uh, how much they appreciated what he did for them on a local level. And I, th- I think that's a really important part of what anybody does, you know, of that stature. And I think it's incredible that he would lend his name to a Derby cinema, which is which is fabulous. Yeah, he was a local boy, wasn't he, from around Chesterfield Way? Yeah, that's right, yeah. 
but it's great to stay grounded, I think, is, is my point. You know, you can go off and do your Harry Potters, but remember where you came from is, is great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anything, any thoughts on your part, uh, Kat? I mean, everyone, uh, when this kind of thing happens, I feel like everyone's kind of in it together when someone passes of such stature. Especially at the moment when people need a little bit of hope. (laughs) (laughs) But then again, it makes you revisit films and makes you think about how you've interacted with that person, like your experiences at the theatre and people that open those doors for you is really important. So I think that's I think that's a good point following some of the twenty sixteen backlash, which is you know, there I I saw a tweet today which was, Oh no, not another RIP year which I can kind of understand that, but I think it's very important that people do revisit mm. those people's works and appreciate the the things that they enriched our lives with. And uh, I don't think we should see an end to this kind of talk about <laughs> the wonderful things that John Hurt did, because that's something that should be talked about all the time and mm. is kind of part of what we should be doing to continue the legacy of those people. That gets the conversation started again, mm. or about well things that have happened or the situations that people are in so mm. so yeah a great a great actor who's uh, already must much missed and it's barely been 24 hours it seems uh okay so uh so as i said uh, at the beginning you guys have are the co-founders of rare giants which is a like i said non-profit non-for-profit organization who uh, organize uh, events around art that has been had, had been restored or preserved uh, and your first screening is going to be on March the 6th and it's going to be a screening of the Richard Brooks film In Cold Blood and uh, I just wanted to start by saying how what, where did, how did you get started uh, what inspired you to found Rare Giants? Well we knew we wanted to work together for quite a while um, Ryan had obviously worked with Five and Dime putting on more cool screenings and with, events with your good co-host Matt yeah, yeah. And I have a bit more of a background in documentary film and I worked for Sheffield Doc Fest originally. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where my love of film developed. So I'd worked on large events before, but not smaller. I'm kind of... <laughs> small, not, I'm not saying it like that, know, but you know what I mean. I know like, what you're saying. Um, well, it's doing something that you really were passionate about and putting events on to share with other people and... Being able to talk about yourself, I wasn't the person that was going up there to share works. I wasn't programming anything. I was in the marketing side of it. So once I'd kind of come out of that and you'd come out of Five and Dime, it kind of made sense to do something that we both enjoyed and wanted to share with people outside of our work life, really, and run that alongside it. So we go to quite a lot of events. We have to travel quite often outside of Sheffield as well as some great events that are on in Sheffield and we just are really passionate about film so I think yeah I think you hit on a good point which is you have a very good background of serious film organization whereas Matt and I <laughs> did 30 events together which were kind of court film events and the the passion there I suppose was trying to put on an experience for people mm-hmm. And it was, you know, we did show some really great films like Cutter's Way or Harold and Maud, mm-hmm. Persona, but we also were quite lumbered with things like The Room, which uh, are a very different uh, side to our, you know, like, as we all uh, 
have a, a spectrum of film love which you know takes in lots of different things this is a, a new way of expressing that side of our personality I guess which is more about a, a kind of serious love of film yeah it kind of opens up the genre spectrum a little bit as well for us to kind of dip in yeah so you're saying that if there isn't a 4k restoration of the room you're not going to jump for the chance <laughs> to put it on <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> although I'm sure Tommy Wiseau is already preparing that, so I'm not going to put that on record that we'll do it. Cover our box. What inspired you to make uh, In Cold Blood the first film you were going to show? Because it's a great, it's a great movie, but it's not one that I think a lot of people uh, really th- think about, or it's not one that kind of leaps to mind when people talk about great films of the 60s or great American films. Right, and, and that's exactly one of the reasons that we wanted to, uh, to choose this as our opening film. Crucially, the, one of the key pieces of information is that our screening will be free, the first one. So mm-hmm. I think that kind of gave us a bit of a free, free reign to choose anything that we wanted to. Because it's, it's, it's also in partnership with Sheffield Hallam University and they're, they're paying the budget for the film. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a completely free event as in... From our side, there's no costs, and for the audience, there's no costs. So that gave us this amazing free reign to really pick something that would really set the tone, I think, for what we were trying to do as, a, as an organisation. Critically, in terms of In Cold Blood, uh, last September it, it enjoyed a 4K restoration from Park Circus. And that kind of had a, a release over here in uh, September, and it hit the BFI in London and a couple of places up north. But it didn't visit Sheffield and a lot, a lot of places up here actually, and, and I thought that was, uh, you know, like a, a missed opportunity, and, and it was really a good opportunity for us to sort of fill that void, you know, and, and take that film really because it, it's enjoyed such a, a great new restoration and hasn't been here, and it's about giving people the opportunity to see. I mean, it, I think I, I don't know if it's just my perception that over here it's not as well known as it is in the US because it's a part of the National Film Registry and it's on the Criterion Collection, whereas here you can't even pick it up on Blu-ray. So I think it was a, it was a choice there that it seemed to be something, as you say, people might not necessarily be fully aware of. Mm. Yeah, and it's also a film that I think really you know benefits from being restored. I think I, I first watched it about 10 years ago and like the whatever print they were using to put it on like uh, sky movies or whatever wherever i recorded it from wasn't great didn't kind of do justice to it but the the restoration that was done last year which i assume is the one that criterion put out that was the one i i saw just kind of draws out how what a beautiful movie it is you know shot by conrad hall lots of great use of uh, of shadow and lighting so much so that there are some parts of the film where it's almost impossible to see anything which actually makes it more horrifying in some ways but yeah it's that it certainly felt when i watched it initially that it was some sort of weird court movie because i'd never really heard about it even though it was based on a hugely acclaimed book and yeah then you look into it it's like oh it was nominated for a bunch of oscars but it seemed to have just fallen fallen through the cracks somehow yeah, right. And like I was looking at the other films from 1967 that are in the National Film Registry mm. and there's titles like The Graduate and mm. In the Heat of the Night. And there does seem to be this, you know, like these are titles that are very much on the forefront of you know people's minds. You know, they are, 
a part, a large part of film culture, whereas weirdly this one seems to have escaped. Mm. Um, but I think you, you say, you know, the, the right thing about the way it looks. I mean, we, we just watched it, uh, 40, it ended 45 minutes before we came on the show. So <laughs> we're, it's very fresh in our minds. And, and you were saying, Kat, about just like how amazing it looked. Yeah, it was really beautiful to watch, which considering the subject, yeah, it was beautiful to watch straight from the outset, really. I think we kind of looked at each other and were like, yep, yeah, great choice. <laughs> it's just stunning and the sound as well absolutely yeah. amazing it's a it's a I, I'm not sure how much you wanted to go into this but if you look at the the different elements of, of In Cold Blood you know the, the soundtrack and there's so many amazing people involved in that film that it's almost it's almost uh, crazy that it, it's not as highly regarded as it should be really yeah Quincy Jones did the score which is uh, incredible that was very early on in his career as a as a composer as well. I think he'd only really done like the pawnbroker before then. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and it's an incredible, it's incredibly varied score as well. Cause obviously there's a, there's a jazz influence to it, but also it's just intensely menacing and unnerving at various points. Visually, there's a, an interesting contrast between some sequences that are shot almost kind of documentary verite style where people are just, where cat actors are just walking through real locations and no one's really paying any attention. But then you also have like the interrogation scene towards the end where it's very starkly lit and they're finding ways to find interesting compositions just by moving these three men around in a single small cell and like make it incredibly visually dynamic in a way that, uh, you wouldn't think would be possible given like the restrictions, but they managed to find ways to keep it visually interesting throughout in a way that feels um, like a lot of films from the like the, the late sixties that were taking influences from all sorts of world cinema feels very modern. Yeah, it does. It's almost. Um, I think there's a a little bit of a worry when the film starts that it's almost too romantic. You know, mm. it's very uh, iconic Kerouac's America kind of. You know, you following these two guys and because it's so beautifully shot and they they look cool and the car they're driving is cool and you almost worry that it's going to be slightly too too romantic a portrait of these guys until it really kicks in with this their abhorrent behavior and it, it does it's a very unflinching stark film as you said stark is a very good word i think yeah and the way it's cut as well oh, yeah. is just magical really isn't it it's really keeps it flowing and keeps it quite fast, I feel, for such a, not such a long film, but for the length anyway. Yeah, because it's, it's quite significantly long film, at two hours 15, mm. it doesn't feel that, well, not significantly long, but a lot, <laughs> longer, than you, yeah, <laughs> a lot longer than you'd think for uh, that kind of a narrative, really. But, it, it, you know, also, for, I think for a film that's now 50 years old, it does not feel 50 years yeah. old at all. And I think one of the things that really stood out to me when we were watching it was just how many things had kind of taken parts from it or, you know, like it seemed to be, I don't know, Ed might have a, a better view on its place in cinema history, but I thought it was one of the early examples I could think of of like an influence on things like Badlands or Natural Born Killers, mm. you know, this kind of later romantic which sort of went from two guys to typically man and a woman but on a, on a road trip a murderous road trip and mm. that, that was one of the things that really struck me of like how many films kind of did similar things with that 
What was that theme? Yeah, and it's also interesting that it came out the same year as Bonnie and Clyde, mm. which has a very similar thing, but is a lot bloodier. Like, there's not mm-hmm. horrible things happening in Cold Blood, but it, it uh, Brooks kind of elides around them. Like, he cuts straight from the the, t- the two killers sitting outside of the house to the next morning when neighbours come to try and see why the family haven't shown up for an appointment and uh, they discover the bodies. And but you don't see the bodies, you don't see people die, but the the kind of existential horror of it all really comes through in the fact that you don't you don't see what or what happened until the very end of the movie, which also I think adds to that kind of uncomfortable sense of romanticism about it, because you do get to know the two killers uh separate from seeing them commit the acts. Uh, which makes it a lot easier for you to kind of view them as people and maybe get some sort of sympathy from for them because of the terrible lives they've lived lived but uh, then you were forced to confront the fact that they they did like a truly horrendous thing yeah and that, that's something we talked about immediately as after it had finished which was i guess similar to the novel it's, it's a very clever film in that it it kind of draws you in to those characters but then is so unflinching in, in portraying the the act that then it follows that you you kind of feel for them and then you hate them and then it kind of comes to the finale where they're on death row and mm. again it it draws you back into particularly to Perry Smith's character and his relationship with his father mm. uh, and it has a you know spoiler free comment but it has a very powerful finale and mm. that. Where again, you you've swung back to I guess you know it's going to be a, an interesting conversation starter on um, capital punishment for everyone really that mm-hmm. film you know at any, at any point and I think those themes that run throughout it are the themes that have kind of pervaded true crime and the true crime boom really throughout the last fifty years there's you know the the divide in rich and poor and there's a good throwaway line of pinning it on a foreigner, how does a foreigner run? And, you know, the capital punishment, the injustice in the justice system. And yeah, the rich having one set of laws and the poor having another. It has very, like, nothing's changed kind of doom and gloom. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's true. I think that's uh, part of why there is this fascination with true crime is partly some of its morbid curiosity and... I think particularly with, uh, we were just reading the Tom Wolfe quote about um, In Cold Blood, that it's it's not a whodunit and it's not a will they get caught, because you already know that. It's, uh, I'm paraphrasing now, but uh, he said it's it's more about the exploration of the gory details. And I think that's, mm. that's, a, that's a part of that. But it's also, I think people are, are drawn to getting angry at these injustices in, in, in life. And it's not particularly, I think In Cold Blood is a, is a, an example where the case is very clear cut they did a, an awful thing <laughs> that's that's without debate but there's also i think richard brooks does a very good job of weaving in a sympathy for characters that really in in lesser hands would be completely unsympathetic yeah he was a, a kind of a great humanist um as a as a director and as a writer stemming from his background in journalism i think he probably like someone like a Samuel Fuller, he saw a lot of terrible things firsthand just because he had to report on them. Uh, and I think that comes across in the movie. It's, it's very nuanced in its approach to 
to to the death penalty and the moral question of is it right for the state to kill people because of what they've done uh you know is that is that justice which is 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 more or less what his the, the character of the reporter who he kind of invented as as something of a mouthpiece for himself a nuanced mouthpiece but not someone you know is not just kind of hectoring the audience or the other characters but you know he does make his opinions on the death penalty fairly clearly felt through what the characters say and even just like the images like some some of the images in it are like up there with um like a short film about killing the Kieslowski movie which is like it's similar in that it's about a, a terrible thing that you know the character committed but you it wants you to feel uh sympathy for them and in terms of the setting i think it's interesting that it's uh it takes place in the midwest as the actual crimes did but it, it emphasizes it takes what are meant to be these kind of grand vistas these beautiful americana things uh and shoots them in black and white and makes this place look really forbidding and uh genuinely kind of alienating and it, it's makes for a nice contrast from like the millions of stories that are set in like big cities about people being killed you know it does say there's something violent in america's soul regardless of where you go yeah and actually one of it was one of the comparisons you brought was twin peaks wasn't it Mm -hmm. yeah well the first thing straight from the outset was the sound elements of it i think that made me think the soundtrack itself yeah that made me think of of Twin Peaks, but I guess there's a lot more links that. Yeah, well, I, I once you'd said it, I kind of thought about the boot is quite a key mm-hmm. piece of evidence, which is like uh, Leo Johnson's yeah. boot and <laughs> not wait, we're making this sound like a crazy fan <laughs> theory, <laughs> but uh, just more leading on from what you said, which is again that's that's a the violence within you know like the a beautiful setting. Um, mm-hmm. I think that you could see, again, this was another film that, uh, another piece of work that In Cold Blood must have had some influence on, particularly the soundtrack, and mm-hmm. there were elements of, you know, lawmen drinking coffee, and I know that a lot of these are quite uh, archetypal, procedural genre things, but I think there was definitely a little more to it than that. Again, it, I think it was a good a good parallel that you drew, that there's, some, you know, this darkness lurking... In Americana. <laughs> yeah, a small town in the middle of nowhere, these kind of idyllic lives just shattered, but uh not by a demon <laughs> for once, by by real people <laughs> doing doing a terrible thing. So um so like like I said, the the movie, although it's based on a real thing and real event, uh and is based on a quote unquote non-fiction novel, uh which was written by Truman Capote where he relayed the events, but he kind of specifically moved things around and he, he wrote himself out of the book because he was kind of a part of the investigation and, and he's not really in it except as the narrator. Um, uh, I was I thought it interesting that that In Cold Blood kind of feels like an example of quote unquote true crime. So it's like it's, it's very much an artistic recreation of events and it's a movie that in some ways kind of blurs the line between fact and fiction in some of its casting like there's a court scene towards the end where they cast real jurors from the actual crime the poster for it famously features the eyes of the two actual killers as opposed to the actors playing them which uh, i still find to be a very creepy detail that they went for <laughs> um i i thought there was that it's interesting that even that uh, it kind of maybe isn't the first example of this but it certainly feels like a significant example of a filmmaker taking a real life event and using it 
in a in a way that you know is is respectful to the thing that actually happened, but uh, to tell kind of their own artistic story. Uh, I wondered if you guys uh, would agree with that, and if you could think of other examples. I think yeah, it's obviously not the first example in cinema of you know like using non-professional actors and things, but it is a very I think it feels like a very keystone film in in that, the, those terms. I think I think you you make a very good point about it being respectful because we've we've seen kind of a, a number of things that aren't, which probably best not to dwell on. But I think. Uh, <laughs> I think I think it's a particularly good example of of how you could take a, a subject and respectfully turn it into art because there is a process I think both with the book and with the film of blurring lines of fact and fiction and that's something uh, as you said with with the kind of loosely term loosely used term true crime that that has been you know particularly the last few years it, it's. Uh, it's an ever more popular, popular thing that, that people enjoy. And I think particularly with documentary, there is a blurring of the lines these days, you know, like a film like The Imposter is a, is a good example of mm. where it's almost kind of turned the other way, where it's a, fi- a fiction film that will be portraying itself as factual. Now documentaries are taking in elements of fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another example might be something like Exit Through the Gift Shop. Which is not right. crime necessarily. Well, I guess plagiarism is a crime, but um, <laughs> like that is a that is a movie that very deliberately wants the audience to be unsure if what they're watching is a thing that genuinely happened or if it was all a massive hoax. Uh, and and that's kind of an interesting one where formally it's a do- obviously a documentary, but everything that's contained within it because of who made it, you're you're basically going to have to spend and you're meant to spend the whole time thinking. How much of this is true and how much of this is Banksy just messing with us? Yeah. And I guess that kind of then leads it into a bit of a blurred line between documentary and mockumentary as well, mm. which in itself is an interesting yeah. conversation. Are we saying that Christopher Guest is true grind? Is <laughs> 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 the event. Well, <laughs> well I, I didn't see for your consideration, but people seem to think it was a crime. <laughs> We saw mascots. That that was definitely a crime. Yeah, that's a shame. Or um, historically, I think probably a big example would be something like F for Fake. Yes. Yeah. A film that deliberately tells you straight up, "I'm going to lie to you at a certain point," (laughs) and kind of leaves you uh, to guess at what point the lies start and stop. Uh, But is is another case where they're taking a thing that genuinely happened. You know, uh, genuine cases of of plagiarism and of hoaxes. Uh, and then spins its own very entertaining web of hoaxes and subterfuge. Yeah, and that's quite a magical film, isn't it? It's mm. quite a, it is very much uh, behind the magician's code of cinema, if, as I'm sure Orson Welles would like to be remembered as <laughs> <laughs> the masked magician. But I, I think it is, it is interesting how these lines blur, because I, I think a lot of the, the, the bigger series that are, popular now certainly knowingly include thriller elements and they you know they they kind of present themselves as more of a thriller film than than a documentary series mm-hmm. well i guess there's probably elements of that partly and this might be slightly controversial to say but to get audiences to notice it in the first place that might not mm. necessarily stick a doc on and 
maybe to yeah just draw more people in because people want to know the details of and they want to if they've got a visual to help them and to add more more suspense and more thrill then then yeah I think uh, you can see that even in non-crime documentaries, like something like uh, Searching for Sugar Man, which yes. is a, a really a movie that I, I really love. But I do, uh, it's you know, it's hard to avoid the fact that they are a little bit disingenuous about the details of of Rodriguez's disappearance, in that uh, people knew that he wasn't <laughs> he wasn't dead, and apparently the actual investigation was much shorter than the film presents it as. It's more the film presents it as more of a mystery than it actually was, and obviously reality spoils the mystery of it by the fact that he then promoted the movie. I guess, um, <laughs> but but it is it is one of those cases where they take what is a very interesting story, but then they kind of pep it up a little bit to make it uh, perhaps a little more suspenseful than the truth which is that some guy said hey what happened to this guy oh we found him yeah it was a <laughs> film that was very economical with the truth let's say mm-hmm. i think my i think uh, my bigger issue with that film was that it was never really acknowledged that he was a little bit behind the times like yeah he was kind of doing 60s music in the 70s which you know like it was it was good music but it was kind of a little bit off the pulse i thought well, that's that's by the by. That's just my opinion. <laughs> yeah, he really should have waited to the '90s when it was good to be doing '60s music again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or at least until after the Inside Louis Davis soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> in in terms of um, dramatic films, I think I thought an interesting example of of a movie that is a, a blending of fact and fiction would be something like JFK, which is. Uh, obviously based on a real thing that happened, but is essentially an adaptation of a conspiracy theory. I was saying, like, it's not just kind of taking a true crime, it's a, a filmmaker saying, okay, I'm going to take this actual event and I'm going to solve it <laughs> using using these details that have emerged and kind of picking and choosing the stuff that suits a particular, inter- particular interpretation. Or something like uh, Danny DeVito's Hoffa about Jimmy Hoffa, which is a movie that, at the end, it decides it's going to solve what happened to Jimmy Hoffa um, based on uh, numerous theories about about his death or his disappearance. Uh, and I think that that's kind of similar. That's kind of taking the in cold blood thing of saying, OK, we're going to add a few fictional elements to the fir- to kind of the furthest extreme without actually getting into fiction. Yeah, I mean, I've always preferred the kind of uh, the Seinfeld version of JFK. <laughs> I think... A couple of films that came to mind during In Cold Blood were uh, one was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid mm. uh, because because it was quite similar and it's shot by Connie Hall as well uh, Connie because we know each other <laughs> shot by Conrad Hall <laughs> but it, it kind of at times had that um, with Butch and Sundance there's very much a a, a playful depiction of those those two people you know the, mm. it's a it's a very cartoony jolly at times and they're hysterically funny as a, as a duo uh, whereas I'm sure the reality isn't like that and it's kind of a, you know an elevated version of that truth with I'm sure there's points that they hit that actually happened but I'm sh- not sure as they were as quite as wisecracking as Paul Newman. <laughs> yeah I think that's there's a lot of westerns that are, are really kind of uh, mythologizing in that way they'll have there'll be some details of these real life fiction, these real life characters that every version will hit, but then they kind of 
veer off. I, I watched uh, the Long Riders, which is about the 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 James Younger gang, and uh, I thought it was interesting that um, like every retelling of the story of Jesse James has to have him getting shot in the back of the head while he's putting up that picture. And I was just thinking that how it's interesting how there are literally hundreds of movies that all do that, <laughs> but and they're all wildly different. Like there are some like uh, there's like a Sam Fuller version or or maybe it's a Fritz Lang version from the forties which does it very quickly and but then uh, and it's just kind of a, an action sequence. Or then you compare it to like the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, where it's this very slow, drawn out kind of elegiac moment oh this is the moment when the west died and like it's amazing how there are so many films that take these basic elements and each time they just kind of chop it up and and apply their own version of what the truth was when in reality it probably was just a very quick and dirty thing where you just kind of like oh we just sent it back <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't beautiful nick cave and wallace warren ellis music in the background we're just looking uh, on this side at, at a list of uh, films based on actual events, which is quite interesting. And uh, it's standing out as, as I scroll through that how many of uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, are in here from Kundun, Casino, Goodfellas. And, I, you know, it, it's that kind of thing that makes me interested as to whether some, certain filmmakers are um, drawn to real life events and, and are better at it than, than others. Yeah, I mean, you get that with something like The Wolf of Wall Street, which is obviously based on a real-life event, but is so uninterested in stylistically being anything close to reality. Uh, you know, it is, you know, characters breaking the fourth wall. He literally at one point says, hey, no, my car was a different colour and the car changes in the middle of the shot. Uh, and I think that's an interesting, again, like that is an example of a filmmaker saying, okay, I know what the... I know what the facts are. I know this stuff happened, but I'm more interested in the mentality of this person or the the feel of what it was like to be Jordan Belfort, i.e., a dickhead. <laughs> but you know that is, uh, and wanting to present it in a way that uh, is entertaining, uh, whilst also kind of in the final minutes, kind of condemning. It's certainly something. Uh, the I don't know if you saw the documentary Tony Robbins. I am not your guru. <laughs> Which is, uh, no, I've heard good things. Yes, it's a very good documentary. And I think Berlinger's actually, Joe Berlinger's quite an interesting example in terms of this, uh, this discussion of, of someone who, who deals with uh, like real-life people and real-life cases. But I think it's interesting when you find films that couple well together. So, for example, at the end of Wolf of Wall Street, when he's sort of doing those promotional, mm-hmm. uh, those promotional tours and coaching people to success I guess is the nicest way of putting it you know make it still finding a way to make money and then you find a documentary about someone who kind of does that and uh, it follows Tony Robbins and his life coaching money making machine and I think that's that's quite interesting when you find like a almost as you say with Wolf of Wall Street it's it's so removed from the truth it doesn't feel like it that you have to find a film that feels like truth to reflect it in a way yeah mm. they kind of cut out the trumpet jumping in mm. Wolf of Wall Street <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and also Joe Joe Berlinger is just interesting because of his his involvement in the Paradise Lost trilogy and the fact that because the first film ended up you know creating this movement to try and free them all the subsequent ones are in some way 
documentaries about the documentary itself because like there wouldn't be this movement of people if they hadn't put this documentary out that uh, were you know trying to convince people to re-examine the case and like even the third film is kind of a mere culpa for mistreating the guy that they leaned on as being the suspect in the second movie uh as his his work is kind of um fascinating in, in that regard because he does seem to sometimes it's just he just happens to be in the right place at the right time to end up altering the story in some way similar to that whitey bulger documentary he did where partway through they just happened to be with one of the witnesses when he found out that another witness had been found dead <laughs> and it's just kind of wow. like oh wow this is <laughs> this has gone in a dark and strange direction that's a, an interesting point about, you know, going back to Truman, uh, Truman Capote writing stuff about the book and then the journalist character. I wondered if you knew of, aside from Joe Bollinger, any documentary examples of filmmakers who either have to put themselves in the film for a certain mm-hmm. reason or take themselves out. Yeah, well, that's it's really interesting. We've had quite a few conversations about it and... It's obviously a wider conversation about how involved you should be as a filmmaker. I guess if you set out to be involved and you want to essentially be a subject, then fair enough. But there are other situations, like, for example, making a murderer, like how much of that is influenced and the movement behind that is influenced by just getting it out there and getting the story shared and how many people don't have their story shared who might be in a similar situation. Um, and then on the other side, there's films like Sunita, which we've mm. talked quite in depth, and a lot of people have talked quite in depth about it. Um, because that's a, a film where the, the documentary filmmaker gets directly involved with the subject, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, and basically, well, she's in the film, and she becomes pretty much a subject herself because she kind of helps Sunita to get to a safer space with her own money and it's it's, leads to a a wider ethical yeah uh question i suppose of what the role of a documentarian or a filmmaker is or if a film Mm. if it was a different filmmaker and they couldn't do Mm. that the story would have taken a totally different turn or might have taken a bit longer for her to get into a different situation so yeah and i know that that conversation has been had and the filmmakers kind of said like that happened and I wanted to do it, so that's fine. I think it's interesting to bring it back to Capote because I think, I know you haven't seen Capote, the, the film. No. And I have, but it was a long time ago. But the, the, mm. the thing that haunts me about, or like haunted me about that film was his own involvement with the case and kind yeah. of the idea of having to wait for a conclusion to, to such a, a thing. So, you know, I, I think it was very well portrayed by Philip Seymour Hoffman of, of the kind of misery that he went through in kind of almost having to wait for those guys to be murdered. Mm. Or his, uh, his, how close he got to Perry Smith. Mm. Um, like just the fact that he seemed to be genuinely on good terms with him, but also there's the question of, was he, did he genuinely like him or did he just pretend to like him so that he could get access so he could get those stories about his dad and to kind of flesh out the psychology of his character uh and you know that's that's i think that was probably why i I saw in cold blood in the first place was because like capote came out and i was like oh this is you know this is really fascinating the fact that he 
did seem to be in some ethically murky waters <laughs> which then do not appear in <laughs> in the book in the book it's very much kind of like yeah these things happened and i in no way <laughs> um befriended a source in a way that could be uh could be considered dubious uh, uh, uh another filmmaker i thought of that uh puts himself in his movies and certainly has elements of it that that could be considered kind of dubious would be something like Werner herzog who admits that his documentaries about quote unquote the ecstatic truth rather than you know reality and so that's why you have things like in grizzly man there are clearly sequences that are restaged from previous kind of conversations or whatever and they have the particularly when he's talking to the mortician or whatever and he has this kind of weird like robotic slash mannequin come to life quality because he's clearly being coached to kind of talk in this in this completely unnatural way or he's like a total weirdo but it seems staged um i think that's uh an interesting example of of a filmmaker who uh prizes truth over reality some trying to make some sort of broader artistic point about humanity uh rather than just saying okay here's a, a, a recitation of all of the facts about this particular case yeah and i think that's another thing in general, like with Sunita, that's kind of like her life was on the line if she hadn't mm. done something. And um, she's often said as well that once you're, you're a filmmaker and you're there, you're already making a difference. You're already changing the situation mm. just by being there. It's never going to be by the wall, 100% truth, if that makes sense. It is, but... Just by being there, you're making a difference. It's the fundamental law of observation, I suppose, which yeah. is as soon as you observe something, it behaves differently. differently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, you're right. It would make a difference anyway, it, unless you had absolutely no idea that you were being filmed, which I guess is a different moral dialogue. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a there's a bit of that in um, Camera Person, the the Christian Johnson uh, movie that came out last year, which is an assemblage basically of offcuts from documentaries that she's worked on and and because it's like the in-between bits there are moments where she's just it's just her and whichever director she was working with at the time discussing about shot placement or you know like having to record over um footage that they couldn't legally use because it was kind of because they were at like guantanamo bay or something and they couldn't they had literally wandered into like a restricted area and they couldn't use anything uh and it's it's kind of interesting in the way that it very kind of casually in kind of recounting her life and her work just kind of dips into these the the moral and the ethical questions about documentary filmmaking which is that as much as you are telling the truth or, or or trying to recount what actually happened you are also making deliberate choices about what gets included what gets uh, left out which perspective you're paying attention to uh, and it is as constructed um, as any kind of work of fiction yeah, definitely. Well, what it made me think of straight away, really, which isn't exactly film, but what we talked about in terms of reality television and that long conversation that's been going on for for years about how people feel they're portrayed on television. I guess that's because it reaches a wider audience and it's a little bit more mainstream, but it completely seeps in, doesn't it? Mm. And about how the lines between kind of factual telly and reality TV and documentary and there's so many, like the OJ doc, who, because it's split up into so many different parts, yet at IDFA it was shown as a whole film, and now obviously it's been nominated 
um, for an Oscar, so... Sarah J made in America. Yes, yeah, sorry. Not yeah. not American. Yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> Which, yeah. Which is a... That's a very good example, actually, mm-hmm. of the, the two kind of two sides of uh, what we've been talking about in, in some sense, which is, you know, you could have this very stylized version of the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm immediately thinking of John Travolta as, mm. uh, I forget the character's name. Or the, oh. Robert something. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, it, it's, it's, yeah. It's irrelevant, <laughs> but it's a very uh, over-the-top kind of, almost Batman villainous performance, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, in both in terms of the way that they've ex- exaggerated his features and mannerisms, yeah. as opposed to watching the truth. But it, it doesn't, in, in a sense, it, there's almost a, a comical kind of capturing of his essence and that, and that truth in, in the Herzog way, I suppose. I, I think you see that with the performance of, um, uh, with the, the, the Johnny Cochran character as well character in, in quotation marks because obviously johnny cochran was a larger than life figure and that's why people knew who he was because he was this kind of just huge personality and he put himself out there in that way but that uh that does really kind of capture the essence of what people think johnny cochran is and there's shadings in there of him kind of as a real person and his his motivations behind it all but that show does a really good job of of capturing why these this trial and why these people became a national obsession because they all seem to be just kind of huge bigger than life figures okay uh thanks guys for for coming on the show once again would you just like to tell everyone when the screening of in cold blood is uh, and where you, they can find you uh, online sure um it's on monday the 6th of march at sheffield hallam in the void so there'll be more information on facebook twitter um, and on our website, which is raregiants.com, and we're just at Rare Giants as well. So you can find everything on there, follow us for more event information and further events in the future. Great, wonderful. Okay, and once again, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.